This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Today we're going to be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, but to start out, uh, I think we would all probably like, uh, uh, we would agree with the statement that we don't like to be judged. Would this be fair? Like, being, being judged actually kind of makes us uncomfortable. We'd all be like, it'd just be better if we weren't judgy people. But actually, I would like to say that the human heart longs to be judged. It longs to be judged by an authority that actually declares what it's doing right. What we, maybe another way to say it, is what we really want is at the end of time to hear those age-old words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not that it didn't matter. And definitely not that we had messed it up. But well done. We long for that. Far from being content with live and let die, we want to know that what we're doing is right. In this series on 1 Corinthians, we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at how to begin to address conflict. We've looked at how foolish God's plan of salvation is. Um, and we've also looked at how to find meaning in our work last week. And today we're going to be looking at this question of how do we know that what we're doing is right? Now, in investigating that phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant, one way to evaluate is whose scrutiny are we under when we're being judged? The reason that we don't like being judged by other people is because we either see them as equals or inferiors or maybe superiors with bad judgment. Um, we don't like that. Um, we think that it's mistaken. We want an authoritative judge. And yet, I think as we go through our lives, and what we'll see in this passage as well, is that we generally default to maybe three main areas of where we look for to figure out whether or not what we're doing is right. We look to be right in our own eyes. We look to be right in the eyes of the world. And we look to be right in our own teams. So these are going to be our three points today. And we're going to see these uh, laid out in 1 Corinthians as Paul addresses their own desire to be right. Because the Corinthians had their various ways of figuring out whether or not they were going to be right. You see, they had this desire to know. They were actually very anxious for Paul's letter. They wanted to receive it because they wanted to finally know, yeah, I'm the right one told you. But Paul, although he will do that in some places in 1 Corinthians, just say that thing over there is wrong, don't do it. And this passage today is going to go behind that curtain. And he's going to say the problem with wanting to be right is the way that you're going about doing it. You're trying to do it in your own eyes, in public opinion, and by building your own teams. So with that, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. We're going to be continuing through 4, chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life and death or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This ends the reading of God's word. And it is right in all that it says because it is God himself who says it. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we've acknowledged that we have this desire to know that what we're doing is right. How do we know that we are right? We want to hear that voice of commendation from authoritative service sources saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we so often misidentify which authority it should be. And one of the areas that we do that is we try to make ourselves that authority. Our cultural heartbeat tends to say that we're the only ones that can determine if we're doing right. Only God can judge me. And we use that not in, in honesty to say that only God can judge me, but that no one, that I get to determine what God's going to judge me by. Following your own heart and setting your own course is the ultimate prize. But here we're going to see that the Bible pushes back against this idea. I recently watched Wonder Woman 1984. And although there were some touching moments, I have to say that the sequel, which this is the sequel, nowhere near rivaled the first one, and I, I, I hope that most of you would agree with me. Nevertheless, um, the, the villain, one of the villains in the story is Maxwell Lord, uh, definitely thought he was right in his own eyes. He thought he knew what he was after, and he thought he knew what was actually going to be good. He knew it so well that ultimately he was willing to lie to investors, to cheat and to steal in order to make his wishes come true, what he knew to be true about himself. So much so that in an early scene, actually, one of the investors that he's lied to and has caught him in it is accusing him. He says, you're just a liar and a cheat, and his son is in the room. And so when the guy leaves, he turns to Maxwell Lord, the villain, who's been accused of being a cheater, turns to his son 
and says, that's not what your father is, and I will prove it. I will prove it. Maxwell Lord was definitely right in his own eyes. But as you follow the story, he becomes a villain. His desire to be right in his own eyes actually does damage to the relationship with his son that he arguably cares about the most. You see, Maxwell Lord might give us um, an example of what happens when we see ourselves as right in our own eyes. If you listen to your own voice, it's really easy to be deceived. It's really easy to think of yourself as much better than you should. And on this side of maybe, you might say that that's, that's arrogance, uh, that's narcissism. I know what's best for me, and I will pursue it at all costs. But we might say another side of this is actually crushing perfectionism. Um, let me start with the first one, that narcissism. We've already exemplified with Maxwell Lord, um, and I've already mentioned that phrase, only God can judge me. And if, like Tupac, you mean that uh, you're the one that gets to define what God is going to judge you by, then you would be uh, mistaken. You might find just how arrogant you can be. You might find just how selfish you can be. You might find just how easily deceived you are to think of yourself as better than you are. But on that flip side, that crushing perfectionism is when you can't live up to your own scrutiny. Maybe I have a super uh, innocent example that maybe I can carry uh, to, to make it a little bit more weighty. I can be really arrogant about the way that I drive. I imagine most of you uh, share this. In some sense, driving in Puerto Rico has been an, an unbelievably sanctifying experience for me. Because the reality is, is that when I inevitably err, like we all do in everything that we do, but when I'm driving a car and I don't, you know, use the blinker or I turn or I have to make an exit quickly um, and cut people off or at worst maybe cause an accident, I don't live up to my own scrutiny. I've set a standard and I actually can't meet it. Now with driving, I think most of us would kind of schluff that off. I was like, well, that's not that important. But what about lying to our spouses? We make vows when we get married, for better or worse, and we're like, this is who I'm gonna be for this other person. And then when you break it, what do you do? Even in your own eyes, you don't have what it takes. Given enough thought and honesty, we all understand how easily we deceive ourselves. Whether it's thinking that we're better than we really are or setting a standard that we know that we'll never be able to achieve. Furthermore, we're frightened by some of the things that we ourselves would do if we just get to do whatever we want. And that doesn't even factor in what we're frightened of that other people might do if they just do whatever they want, if they do whatever is right in their own eyes. Paul's going to acknowledge that the Corinthians do this very same thing in our first verse that we read. In verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So what Paul is telling us is actually, if you think that you're right in your own eyes, 
you need to stop that. You need to have a bit of humility. You need to look at that and say, I actually don't know everything. I'm actually a little bit afraid of what I can do, of who I can become. Now, Paul isn't being insulting, per se. He's actually asking them to be uh, wise. He, you know, he's, he's asking them to, to have a little bit of saltiness, and we understand this. Um, in order to learn something new, you have to accept the fact that you don't know the thing that you're trying to learn. <laughs> if you think that you already do, you're, you're never going to learn it. That's why in like, scientific experiments, we have to have independent testing, because we know how easily it is for us to be deceived, to have our predispositions, uh, for us to do the same things in the same way, and that it might not be repeatable all the time. We need to be checked because we are easily deceived. We have to become fools. On a basic level, uh, for those of you that are exploring or new to Christianity, my recommendation in hearing this passage is that you don't know. Jesus might be telling you something. Jesus might be showing you something through his word. If you come at it laden with your predispositions about what you think about Christianity, you'll probably find what you're looking for. Becoming a fool, admitting that you don't know, and being willing to be taught actually helps remove some blind spots. It helps you see better. But we as Christians actually need to do the very same thing because... Uh, we, as we study Scripture, may have removed those glasses for some time and, and saw relatively clearly, and then eventually, you know, they, they kind of sneak back on. Um, we, we start to be blinded again. We start to return to those old things that we've done. Or we start to assume that uh, a passage means a particular thing because we just want to get to the answer really quick. And what Paul is saying is you have to be honest with yourselves and lay down that pride that says you know. Really look at that passage and see what it's asking you to do, what it's asking you to believe, who it's asking you to be. Really look at your own life and say, does it conform to this reality? Why or why not? Now, as a final note on how Paul words this to the Corinthians, if anyone thinks that he is wise, let him become a fool. There's one more application point I think is really helpful for us, and that's if you've ever doubted in your faith. I have. I'm assuming many of you have. You've had those questions where you've been reading through or at some point in your life where you go, is this really how this goes? Is this really what's there? And sometimes we look at that and we say, we start questioning because of this doubt. Everything that the foundation was laid on we start saying, was I, was I ever really a believer? Do I need to go back and redo this all over again? What's happened? Have I lost my faith in Jesus? But Paul, instead of saying that actually doubt is an undermining thing to your whole faith, it's actually one of those things that helps remove blind spots. Admitting that you're a fool and that you don't know and that you still have things that you need to learn is a powerful tool. It's a powerful aspect of who the Corinthians need to be in order to understand what right is and so that they're not just creating their own ideas of what right is. So we see that being right in our own eyes is fraught with problems. 
And Paul says that one of the ways to balance it is by admitting that you have to be foolish, that you don't always know the answer. But uh, being right in our own eyes is not the only way that we seek to be wise uh, or to be right. We seek to be right also in the eyes of public opinion. Now, uh, Margarita told me a funny story about being right in the eyes of public opinion that has to do with fashion. So on the forefront, I'm going to need to apologize for all the terms that I incorrectly use. And there's not a lot here, but I have a feeling I'm going to mess it up. So in ninth grade, skinny jeans were out for her. It was not, not something that you could do. Her mom, though, had a very nice pair of Calvin Klein skinny jeans. And as she was going through her mom's closet, she was like, Mom, you need to get rid of these. These are out of style. No one's ever going to accept these. And a couple years later, flare jeans were now out. Couldn't be caught dead in flare jeans. And skinny jeans were what was in. And so Margarita remembers uh, these pair of jeans that, she's, that, that her mom has in her closet. And she says, hey, Mom, where, where, are those, where are those skinny jeans? I might like to borrow those. And her mom looks at her and was like, I got rid of them because you said that they were never going to be in style again. Public opinion changes and shifts rapidly. One thing can be in today and gone tomorrow. But we are right in recognizing the power of public opinion. It makes sense that we're drawn to it. We might say that public opinion has the power to make you wildly successful and popular if you happen to be um, in the right fashion at the right moment, if you happen to be doing the correct business moves at the right time. You can receive that, that power that comes from the public recognizing you did it right. We can also recognize that public opinion has the power to break you. And in some ways, maybe this is beneficial. Um, like, we recognize that the power of public opinion um, is, is beneficial when, say, a professional football player who has once received it all is caught, you know, dogfighting. I'm like, yeah, public opinion should probably influence that a little. We should not be about that. But we can also understand that public opinion can be leveraged in a, a certain way that's dangerous, in a way that we wouldn't say is entirely good like maybe how public opinion treated Monica Lewinsky. Paul addresses public opinion with the Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. We can read that there. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And as I've mentioned before, for the Corinthians, wisdom was like, it's actually, it was like an Olympic sport. So although it wasn't the Olympics, where Corinth was, they had, um, I have it written in here somewhere, biennial Isthmian games were going on at the time. And this was kind of their local Olympics. And actually, one of their events was rhetoric. Like, one thing that they judged people on you could win was how well you could win a crowd. This is what Paul's addressing here. He's saying, are you wise enough to win over a crowd? And in ancient Greece, they had these kind of parameters on wisdom and rhetoric that said that the thing actually had to be good. But by the time we fast forward to the Corinthians' time, uh, they didn't really care about whether or not it was good or not, just whether or not you could win the game. So whether or not you were advocating for a position that was good or bad didn't really matter as long as you had the wisdom to make it work for you. Maybe today, in our day, it might be a good punchline or a meme. As long as it works, it's worth sending, you know? 
But Paul quotes the Old Testament to tell them that this kind of wisdom, this kind of public opinion, cannot be the basis for knowing that you're right because it changes and shifts. It's finicky, just like fashion. God might catch you or catch the world in the foolishness of it. God reveals what's really there. You see, Paul will ultimately stress for the Corinthians in these passages that it's the reason that you can't rely on public opinion is because it changes. The reason that you can rely on God's opinion is because he never changes. He's been the same from creation to Corinth to now. Sometimes we are right, or at least acceptable in the eyes of public opinion as Christians. But very often we are not. And Christians should expect that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world might overlap for a time or a season, but that as the world changes and God never does, that the way that it overlaps is going to be wildly different. But sometimes we as Christians see that overlap, and we hold on to the changeableness of the culture instead of the unchangeableness of what God says is true. Christians often make the mistake of seeing where worldly wisdom aligns with Christian principles and then accepts the world's means to what they think is a Christian end. Public opinion may feel good, but as Christians, when we fall out of favor with it, when all of a sudden public opinion changes against us, we shouldn't be surprised or we shouldn't be hurt. We shouldn't lash out like we've just lost something precious to us or be vindictive. It's because we never counted public opinion as worth anything, right? We counted God's opinion as worth something. So Paul so far has, has pointed out that being, being right in our own eyes is fraught with problems. Uh, being right in the eyes of public opinion also fraught with problems. God's going to reveal how much that changes, how foolish it is. But there's one more area that he's going to focus on, and this one's going to be a little bit less individual, so a little less us against you know, the world or uh, us in our own eyes, and a little bit more collective. And it's going to be by the teams that we build for ourselves. Siding with a team can be a very powerful thing. It can give underdogs the power to stand up in a fight that they should know, like, they shouldn't win otherwise. But I'm interested if you've ever felt like you've backed the wrong team. I have a super nerdy example. Are you ready for this? Um, I saw a Kickstarter some eight years ago uh, when we were first married about a smart terrarium that would be able to grow plants, hold small fish, and maybe even a reptile, and it was all controlled by an app via Wi-Fi. And I'm like, this sounds great. I was working with uh, freshwater fish tank aquariums at the time, just as like a little hobby, and I was growing like plants inside of there, and I was like, yeah, maybe I can make the move to terrarium. This might be fun. So it's on Kickstarter, you know, you gotta like back the project, and then they say the date that it's gonna come out by and all that, so back the project as maybe a Christmas and a birthday present. I don't remember what we had to combine to make that work. Uh, and I'm excited. 
you know? I'm telling everybody, I'm like, this is going to be great. I know that it's like a little nerdy, but I'm like, this is, I'm, I'm excited for this new hobby. And it's supposed to come out in whatever December of that year. And so December comes and goes, and I'm watching the forums. I'm, I'm like on with the team, and I'm like, yeah, they're going to figure this out. And, uh, you know, the company gets on there and like, hey, guys, we've hit some production problems. Uh, it's it's going to be out next quarter, though. And quarter after quarter, it keeps getting delayed. It's two and a half or three years later this product actually releases. By this point, Margaret and I have moved from Kansas City to St. Louis. Uh, I'm in seminary. Uh, I'm not, don't really have time for this hobby anymore, or it's kind of faded into the past, whatever it is. Uh, I actually have to call the company to tell them that I've moved so they can ship it to the correct address. Uh, it arrives, and I'm looking at this, you know, piece of glass and plastic. I'm like, well, maybe I can get back into it, you know? Like, maybe this will be kind of fun. But the Wi-Fi antenna that they used in the Kickstarter thing, um, in, in, the, in the thing, didn't actually speak well with the Wi-Fi system that we had available at the time. And so I couldn't get it to work. And so I'm sitting here three years later, however much we spent on it, after waiting all of this time and seeing this, you know, heap of glass and metal and plastic, and I'm thinking, I backed the wrong team. They've really let me down. I was a little bit embarrassed from my confidence in their ability to finish the project on time or at least reasonably well that would work with my uh, system that I had. I was also a little bit embarrassed uh, by how much I had talked about it with family and friends. Especially that this thing that arrived two and a half years later or so, it was no longer going to work. Teams have the potential to really let you down. That can be a powerful thing in both directions. We like to side with certain sports teams, certain cities, with Android or iPhone, Mac, and PC, and this doesn't even begin to mention political parties to convince us that what we believe is right. We've got the right answer. All these other people are wrong. You see, the Corinthians like to side with and advocate and create teams uh, by focusing on their leaders. So Apollos, Paul, Peter. The Corinthians use these people to delineate their teams, distinguish themselves from one another, and then attack the other group for being insufficient. In verses 21 through 23, Paul will show that they like to boast in their leaders. But in chapter 4, he's going to acknowledge that their leaders are human in verse 5, he'll say, uh, verse 5 of chapter 4, the Lord will say, or Paul will say that the Lord will disclose the hidden things of the heart. And as he's speaking in reference to himself in that section, right, he's saying something along these lines. I'm not afraid of your human court. I'm not afraid of my own court. I am afraid of God's court. I'm not aware of anything that I've done wrong here. But the Lord will disclose the deepest motives of my heart. Paul isn't afraid of these things, but he is afraid of God. And Paul is the leader of a team, somewhat unbeknownst to him, um, that the Corinthians were utilizing to create, like, no, we've got the correct thing, is saying, I'm not aware of anything in my own heart that would disqualify me, but the Lord will disclose the day. What does this mean for our teams exactly? Like, why, why is it that this 
uh, disclosing of the inner workings of the heart is so important? Maybe the question to say it is this way. How do the leaders of our teams act? Are they faithful to something right? Obviously, the most direct way to apply this is about our churches. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, talking about churches. And as your pastor, I've got to say, it was awfully sobering studying these passages. Do I live a Christ-like life? Do the other leaders at this church, is this a community that is marked by a certain kind of rightness? A faithfulness to Jesus and his commands, or is it a community that likes to be puffed up, likes to be right in its own eyes? With a pastor that advocates for a particular view at the expense of other Christians. But far from being just about leaders in the church, it should, of course, be a focus for all of us because we should all strive to be the leaders in that sense of we are disciple-makers like Paul. We should all be um, seeking how to live out kingdom implications in our lives and that that's, um, that's a leadership in the world in a particular way. And we need to take care that our teams are not formed around one particular person one particular blog, one particular news site, one particular denomination at the expense of others. And notice that Paul isn't afraid of acknowledging that there are distinctions. He can say, like, yeah, there are people who follow Paul. There are people who follow Apollos. There are people who follow Peter. And yet this diversity is actually something beautiful, not a fault to be squashed. Our love for one another reveals something special about the gospel. Now, because this is true in our church communities, we can also expect this to be true in other areas of our lives. Where we see this most clearly is conflict. So at work, you have a conflict with a superior. You're going to find a coworker and be like, man, that guy's the worst, right? You guys are going to share about that. You're going to vent about it, and you're going to kind of dig in your heels a little bit. And you might recruit a few other people onto your team. There's this grumbling that's happening, digging yourselves in. This happens in our marriages. Venting to a friend, recruiting sympathy strengthens our view that we were actually right, and so we can dig in against our spouses. Fire shots at the other side. The fundamental problem with our teams is that they're made up of people that are easily deceived. They're made up of people who are just as likely to be fallible. They're, they have leaders that are just as likely to screw up as we are. Being subject to our own scrutiny leaves us lost, unlearned, and subject to error. Being subject to public opinion leaves us at the whims of an ever-changing culture. Being on a particular team leaves us vulnerable to the errors of that team, leaves us open to the failures of the leaders and the disintegration of the whole. So how are we supposed to know when we're doing right? To whose scrutiny are we going to be subject? And I've hinted at it already, and most of you can probably see where this is going. Jesus. <laughs> Answer is always Jesus. This is a church. Um, Jesus stands in our own eyes, 
declaring that we have, in fact, erred, that we are not perfect. He chips away at that uh, arrogance that we might otherwise have had, like, I've been a pretty good person. He will stand in front of you and declare otherwise. Ask him. But he also stands in front of you and declares, and yet I cherish you. I lived the life that you could have never lived. I never once slipped up. There was no darkness, dark motive in my heart that led people astray. Death tried to hold me and couldn't. And I give that life to you. He may chip away at that arrogance, but he also crushes that crushing perfectionism. He admits you can't do it. I'm the one who does it for you. You don't have to perform. Paul even acknowledges this in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. You brought nothing. Why do you boast as if you did? Don't you understand that it's worse for you if you did? It's worse for you if you want to stand before God on your own. You need Jesus to stand there for you. In the court of public opinion, Jesus stands between us and what the world is declaring as right. He stands declaring that God's word is, in fact, ever-changing. He also stands as the one that receives the condemnation of the world because the world looked at the Son of God and said, He deserves to die. But He rose up from the grave. And He turns to us and He says, even if public opinion finds you unworthy and crucifies you, that is not the end of the story. Public opinion is not the ultimate word. My word is ultimate. I will raise you up. But what about our teams? And maybe this is the focus of what Paul is trying to get at. And it's that Jesus is our ultimate leader. The apostles are but mere servants and stewards, if you read there in the passage. But these servants and stewards follow wherever the master goes. The problem for the Corinthians and for us is that Jesus likes to go lower than we would ever want to. Jesus' humility takes him so low that we're a little bit embarrassed by how low he's willing to go. Maybe this is the point we need to hear most loudly. See, Jesus didn't take a he-against-the-world mindset. He didn't build his team and then dig in and shoot shots at the world. Jesus actually gave himself for the sake of the world. And we on his team, we see his declaration of who we are, liberating us from our own consciences, releasing us from the accusation of the world. And instead of digging in our heels against the world, we turn towards it like Jesus, and we lower ourselves like the apostles. When you read that last paragraph that we read, and we lower ourselves for the sake of the world. Christians, I hope you understand what I'm saying. The team that follows Christ lays down its life 
for the sake of the world. It considers itself scum, refuse. We don't stand triumphalistically aloof as if this world could never touch us. Of course it can't. It didn't touch Jesus, and he's the only hope we have. But we follow him, and we run towards it. We weep for our cities like Jesus wept for Jerusalem. We turn the other cheek when punched, and we don't throw our own. We offer the truth, but we recognize that that truth often puts us at odds with public opinion. And that being at odds with public opinion is a dangerous place to be. And we do so willingly. We aren't fighting anymore to be right because Jesus has already said that we are right. It is only underneath the scrutiny of Jesus Christ himself because he saved us from our own deceptions that we can hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. It is under his loving care that we are able to endure the scourge of public opinion like he did. And it is under his leadership that we become a community that lives for the sake of the world. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want so badly to be able to prove ourselves right. We want to be able to prove ourselves right in our own eyes to public opinion, and we want our teams to be right, Lord. We want our churches to be right, but we know that we are so easily deceived. How easily we become arrogant or self-loathing. We're anxious because of the changing tides of popular opinion. And we're subject to the frail leadership and frail communities. Our God and our King, allow us to see ourselves as you do, as faithful servants. Allow us to acknowledge the craftiness of public opinion and stand firm in your truth. Call us to follow you deeper into humility for the sake of the world, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of those whom you love. And we ask this, Lord, because you promised to make us more like you. You promised to vindicate us. You promised that we would hear these promises and that you promised that we would hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.